You've heard of the term cancel culture, getting rid of people with unpopular opinions. It's not all that new. That new movie, Oppenheimer, reenacts the revocation of the scientist's security clearance in the 1950s because of his opposition to the hydrogen bomb. What about today? Can unorthodox opinions mean loss of clearance? We get analysis from the managing partner of the law firm Tully Rinky, Dan Meyer. Dan, good to have you with us. Tom, it's great to be back. And let's begin with that very question. If they don't like your opinions in some committee or some project you're working on with government and industry, can you lose security clearance because we don't like the way this guy believes or thinks or talks? Well, the key here is, Tom, that there's a fair amount of nuance required in these situations. The first thing to remember is that the movie Oppenheimer is about the classification and clearance process almost 75 years ago, and things have changed. But as a person becomes more of a celebrity, and Oppenheimer was a celebrity, the rules get distorted. And we're seeing that in all in spades across the federal government right now with uh, this classified document issue down in Florida. And the important thing for federal employees to remember is that they really don't want to be celebrities. Okay, If you're the average Jane or Joe and you are following the guidelines as they've been issued to you in a document known as SEED4, S-E-A-D-4, then you're going to have a, a fairly neutral process, and any distortion will be easy, for instance, for an attorney to figure out. But the last thing anybody should do is to look at what happens to celebrities when they're in these situations, because they get treated differently because they're celebrities, and that can be good for them or it can be bad for them. In the case of Oppenheimer, he was targeted because he was Jewish, and he was targeted because he had left-wing views as an academic back in the you know prior to the Manhattan Project. There was also vicious competition on that project, and the movie brings us out well. Oppenheimer and Edward Teller were in deep competition within that program. Keller went on to develop the hydrogen bomb. Oppenheimer was opposed to developing the hydrogen bomb, and that got mixed in. And the Army ended up with egg on its face at the end of that process, and the Oppenheimer hearings became standard teaching uh, in the national security field for the next half century. And the movie does a brilliant job of summarizing all of that. So the important thing is don't look at somebody getting a break because they're a celebrity or somebody getting worse treatment because they're a celebrity, just focus on the fact that the, the rules can get distorted the more prominent the person is. And, of course, vindication, you know, 30 years after you're dead doesn't really do much for a lot of people, I guess. And what if you feel that your clearance has been wrongly revoked? What kind of recourse does the average non-celebrity federal employee or contractor employee actually have? Well, two things on the, on the observation. First of all, I think it's important for the Army, for one. It would be nice to have the Secretary of the Army issue some sort of statement about Robert Oppenheimer. But also remember that Oppenheimer has descendants and family members who are still living. Um, and so it is important to clear the record when a wrong has been done. Same thing happened with the comedian Lenny Bruce, a good friend of mine, Robert Corn Revere, was in the movement to have him pardoned because he was targeted for special treatment because of his comedy routine in the 1960s, even though Lenny Bruce was long dead. That was an important thing to do. For the federal employee, the, the key thing to understand is that 
most of the distortion is worked out of the security process, okay? The EEO concerns we always have, I don't see any of that in the security process. One, I think the uh, security system in general has been very good in diversifying. You see people of all uh, race, creeds, colors, disabilities uh, in the adjudication rank. And I think that brings some wisdom to their decision making. But if you do see distortion, if you do see something that's incorrect, you've got a couple of avenues. If there's a procedural failure, you can still go to federal district court. Doesn't happen often because these security cats are really good at what they do and they know they could get dragged into court if they make a procedural failure. So that's one thing. If you're a contractor in the Defense Department, you have the ability to petition the director of the Defense Office of Hearing Appeals if there's been some negligence in the handling of your clearance. Some people might have state-based actions against their company if there's been some tortious interference of contract or some defamation in the process. I'm always looking for those cases. They're few and far between, uh, but they're always worth analyzing. And then the court of all last resort, which everybody forgets about, is the United States Congress. You have a representative and two senators. And if you've really been screwed to the wall, then it's time to, you know, remember that you're an American citizen and help get somebody to get you help up on the Hill to sure. sort through this. All of these are very tough processes. What you want to be is the model security citizen and have this go through in the normal process, because that shows that you are right. a team player. The government sometimes sounds like Remo and Casino. Why take a chance, you know, <laughs> and shoot the guy? We're speaking with Dan Meyer. He is managing partner of the law firm Tully Rinky. You started to say this doesn't happen very often. How frequently does it happen? Procedural failures, just off the top of my head, I think I'm up at about, I have several hundred cases I'm monitoring on a regular basis. I'm not representing all those people I have associates. Of those, let's just say of 300 cases, I know that I'm going to have five or six that there's going to be something a little funky going on. I got one right now at an agency that I think could be headed to federal district court because there's something funny going on between management and security. So I would say it's a small fraction, but it's enough to be alert alert for them. And what should people do to avoid getting caught up in some type of situation that could result in that loss? For example, you know, stay out of jail, <laughs> don't drive drunk or have big gambling debts. Well, the most important thing is to grab a hold on the Internet of a copy of a document called Seed 4, S-E-A-D 4. And I tell all my clients to read that every year the week of their birthday. Not on their birthday, that's kind of dorky, but at least the week of their birthday, they should refresh their memory. Don't rely on agency training because most of it stinks. I know I've developed some of it and I wasn't proud of the program I developed. Uh, it just doesn't work on the slideshow. You need to read that regulation once a year. And then you need to get advice on when to report problems and you need to realize that reporting to your security officer is in your interest. There's this huge internet chat board sort of uh, narrative out there that says that you shouldn't report to your security officer. It's wrong. Every one of my clients who reports and reports up front does well in the end. Sometimes they have to adjudicate, sometimes they don't. But reporting is your best friend. That's how you stay abreast of what's going on. And then, I'm not trying to be self-promotional, but if you've invested so much into your security clearance and your federal employee, if you're like in your mid-30s and this is your career, 
you need to sock away some money every payday to to hire an attorney if you get into a situation where you really don't know because your security officer may not be able to tell you because remember security officer is both looking for your violations and advising you on how not to do violations there's kind of a conflict of interest there but when you hire an attorney you own that attorney right you paid that attorney you paid her or him to give you advice and they're going to give you the advice to get you out of the trouble and here's a question on the process itself the apparatus for security clearance has been moving to what they call continuous vetting. That is, they monitor databases, public information sources about people's activities to see if they remain you know, worthy of clearance. Has that resulted in, can you tell, an increase in the number of revocations or had no effect or maybe reduced them? Yeah, I, I talked to a security officer uh, two weeks ago at an intelligence community element who um, uh, it's doubled. Uh, his caseload. So I think that's happening throughout the system. And what it's going to do, it's going to shift. It's going to shift the focus of the security community onto debt, onto gambling, onto criminal violations, on onto all the things that are easily trackable with algorithms, with artificial intelligence. The critical function is how do you get to the more nuanced things, guideline B, guideline C, the espionage stuff. That's not going to come up as, as easily in the uh, systems that continuous monitoring relies on. But for right now, there's a massive focus on people with bad debt, drug issues, if there's been uh, something through local uh, law enforcement. And it's now so automated that uh, it's an email that goes from the supercomputer to your security officer. There's no human eyes on that process. It just gets spit out right away. So, yes, there's going to be a lot more scrutiny. And the theory on gambling or other types of debts means that the belief is the person could be suspect to bribery. Is that the theory here? Yeah, if you're running high debts, then uh, the WASP from Cuba or the SSB from Russia could come in and say, hey, you got a $50,000 gambling debt. We'll give you 100000 if you give us the secret manual. So don't go to any off-the-market poker games run by Russians. No, oh, that's a bad idea. And dating websites that are in Eastern Europe, not a good idea. Most of them are fronts for foreign intelligence services. Dan Meyer is managing partner of the law firm Tully Rinky. Some great advice. Thanks for joining us. Okay, Tom, anytime. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Don't cancel the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time 
as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have, we rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast a vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative, 
It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, de- de- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's, it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard. And don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, Mm -hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother. You know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. 
And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.